Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. We are looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And for the next three podcasts, we're going to look at a very important chapter, which is Mark chapter 10, which is really about ethics in the kingdom of God, what God wants from us. It's part of a three-part series. We're going to look at family, money, and status. But before we even start reading, I think an analogy will help us begin to understand the point of these lessons and maybe help us avoid some misuse. When I got here at my church in 2004, St. Luke's in Birmingham, we had a class called Created by God for our fifth and sixth grade children. It was basically a class to teach them about their bodies, about the mystery of human sexuality and the gift of our bodies, and to teach us how things work, of course. My poor daughter, Betsy, was a fifth grader when we moved to Birmingham. We moved to town. So here she is, brand new in the church, didn't really have any friends yet, and we toss her in this Created by God class. And I think she was pretty much um, thunderstruck by the whole experience. I picked her up after the session one night, and I said, Betsy, how was it? And she said, I, I can't talk about it. <laughs> but we, we do have this class for the children, and I do think they enjoy it in the end. Their parents really do enjoy it. But over the years, we figured out that the class needed to change. Uh, in 2004, the end of the, the class, or the goal of the class, was to teach the children uh, how things work. But over time, with the ubiquity of the Internet and really the filth that our children were beginning to be exposed to, pornography uh, just being everywhere now at a younger and younger and younger age, uh, we realized that the, the class needed to change from how things work to people are not things. This would be the end goal for the class. We started with how things work. We changed it to people are not things, which means that how we would get there would be the means. In other words, should we get a coach? Should we have small groups? Should we have a new curriculum? Uh, but you see, the next three sessions are on ethics, but they're also on a confusion on Jesus' enemies' parts between means and ends. So how we teach the class is simply a mean as long as you know the end goal. Uh, this is helpful because Mark chapter 10 has been used by the church to hurt people, quite frankly. The verses I'm about to read are about divorce and adultery, and I wince when I read them in church as part of the lectionary because I'm reading them you know, in front of wounded people, and I can't wait to get to them to explain. Uh, so the nice thing about this podcast is I'm able to explain a little bit first, so now that we can read it and now we can dig. So I want you to see this as a confusion between means and ends. This is Mark chapter 10, beginning with the first verse, and then I'll end at the 16th verse. I'll read it. We'll talk about it. Jesus left that place and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds again gathered around him, and as was his custom, he again taught them. Some Pharisees came, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, 
Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms and laid his hands on them and blessed them. Well, I want to start by by reminding you about the geography of the world of Jesus. And in many ways, if you go to the Holy Land today, uh, the land itself becomes a Bible. Capernaum, like uh, which would be Jesus' base of operations, or like any other place in Galilee, sits on black rocks. Uh, Galilee is a black basalt rock place, uh, and so that so that uh, you can you can see that the dirt is black and the rocks are black and the buildings are all black. And then if you leave the Galilee, you get to the yellow limestone rock, which is everywhere else. Uh, yellow rock is used for in Nazareth, for instance, and in Jerusalem. And I say that the land becomes a Bible because Jesus did just great on black rocks. On black rocks, he would heal people. On black rocks, he fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and fish. On black rocks, he would perform exorcisms. On black rocks, he was a rock star. And on yellow rocks, when he would leave the safety of the Galilee, uh, this is where people would dismiss his ministry in Nazareth because they knew him when he was a little boy. Uh, This would be where his enemies would begin to circle in Jerusalem. And so that Mark chapter 10, verse 1 sets a stage. Jesus left that place and went to Judea beyond the Jordan, which is to say that Jesus left the safety of the Galilee, he left the Black Rocks, and now he's on the Yellow Rocks, and his enemies are circling with a test. And it is quite a test. It's brilliant and it's complicated. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, in the world of Jesus, there were three schools of thought on this very hot topic. And divorce was the topic, the fault line between political parties. And in fact, it's the issue of divorce that got John the Baptist killed. So there were three interpretations of this thing that people talked about all the time. And I want to stop and say this right away. You can't lift these old stories and compare them to our modern uh, circumstance of divorce and remarriage. This is not apples to apples. It's a different cultural aspect for starters most most cases, and if not all cases, the women had no say in it, which is remarkable because in the house, Jesus says, if a woman divorces a man, uh, she commits adultery, which which gives at least women a little more of an equal footing in this thing. But I'm getting ahead of myself. What I want what I want you to hear me say is this. And they taught me this in seminary: a text without a context is just a pretext. So let's don't lift these words to say anything about divorce and remarriage in 2022. Rather, let's look at the world of Jesus for just a moment and how how Jesus is noting that they're confusing means with ends. Okay, there are three schools of thought on a hot topic, three interpretations of the law. One, a relaxed school of thought, which means that divorce is pretty much permitted for any reason, including bad cooking. Two, a restricted school of thought, which means that sometimes it's permitted uh, in egregious circumstances. And then three, there's a forbidden school of thought, which means no, no, never, ever, ever. Here's the brilliance of the test or the trap, It's re- to be more specific. If Jesus chooses one, then the Pharisees can rally two camps against him. But as I've said, 
it's also confusion between means and ends. So what Jesus does is he goes back to the beginning. Um, speaking of the beginning, there has been some really cool writing lately and some new scholarship around a site in the Negev Desert called Har Karkum. It's, that that's, uh, means mountain of saffron is what it means. It interpreted that. And it's, it's halfway between Petra, which is in Jordan, a, a biblical city, and Kadesh Barnea, which was the chief encampment of the Israelites in their wanderings from Egypt. It's a straight line in between the two. And this new scholarship suggests that this might be the actual mountain of Sinai because of its location there. Now, there are traditional Mount Sinai's uh, in, in this part of the world, uh, places of pilgrimage, places with competing places, quite frankly, with monasteries on the top. But this particular mountain, Har Karkum, is a major Paleolithic, meaning prehistorical site, Paleolithic holy site. Um, Paleolithic epoch would begin, say, 100,000 years ago, leading up to about 11,000 years ago, which means that, that prehistoric people treated this mountain as a cultic center with shrines and altars and stone arches and pillars and some 400,000 rock engravings. It's crazy, right? And it's possible that here at Har Karkum, Moses received the Ten Commandments of the original moral law. And it makes sense to me because this was God's mountain for a long, 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 long time. I have my own experience with something like this. When I was a minister in North Alabama, our church was near something called the Bankhead Forest. And if you know anything about our state, it's beautifully biodiverse. I mean, there's all sorts of all sorts of flora and fauna in our state. It's one of the most biodiverse states in, in the United States. And the Bankhead Forest is a plateau that sits about 900 feet above sea level, which means it has deep crevices and cuts that were left behind by the last glaciation, which simply means that there are things growing down there that don't grow in Alabama. They're not contiguous uh, with any other plants. And so there are fir trees down there and birch trees down in these cuts. It's amazing. It's like walking into Canada. Absolutely fascinating forest. And in the middle of the Bankhead, there is the largest tree in the state of Alabama, a big yellow poplar. Five men can stretch their arms around it. Uh, it's in an old-growth stand of forest, and it's absolutely beautiful and holy. And near this giant tree is a cave with ancient carvings or glyphs. Uh, there's a stick man and a sun and a snake, and these were carved by ancient uh, Native Americans, pre, pre-Cherokee, pre-anything that we would recognize as, as, a, as a tribe uh, today. Uh, we don't know much about these people. We just know that they worshiped in here. And I took a youth group to go see the big tree, and we stopped in the cave, and I showed them the glyphs, and we traced our fingers over these ancient carvings. And one of our kids said, well, wouldn't it be cool to have Eucharist in here? And I, and I, it's because it looks like a church, and there's a cave, and there's a place where you could have had an altar. And I thought about it with the kids, and, and I said, you know, I don't, I don't think it would be right for us to worship our way here because we're in someone else's church. And I wonder now if Har Karkum uh, was that way too, that, that Moses perhaps met God on the mountain because that had been someone's church for a long, 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 long time. Well, no matter where you find it, uh, it was a world-changing event because God used a new technology, which was writing, uh, to communicate 10 ends, 10 priorities for humanity. Uh, writing before had been used as math uh, or to secure the the status or the or the religion of the king, uh, but now God was using this new this new technology to communicate the divine mind. 
and the first four would be God's ends for us in terms of a right relationship with the Creator. The first four, you know them. One, no other gods before me. Two, no graven images. Don't make me into a thing. Three, no misuse of my name. And four, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The next six would be a right relationship with people. These would be God's ends for us. Honor your parents. Do no murder. No adultery. Do not steal. Don't lie to anybody. And don't covet another's property. In other words, in short, love God, love people. God is not a thing, and people are not things. There's one more thing I'll say about Har Karkum that that recent pilgrims have noticed in the winter solstice. If you can get down there, it's hard, it, you have to get permission. It's a part of the it's a part of the nation of Israel where they do military uh, exercises and things. But if they'll open it up for you during the winter solstice, when the days are really short and the sun is a certain angle, there's a cave that glows just like the burning bush. And you can look this up on, on Wikipedia and see it. But what it tells us is that these stories in the Hebrew scriptures are not so fanciful after all. I mean, it looks just like the bush that Moses saw that was not consumed. In time, these 10 ends, these 10 laws would become 613, which is not simply a Hebrew problem. It is what humans do. It's a good case for the confusion of means and ends. I've got a good example of this. You know, when I was a when I was a child, I was always taught that Jesus came to start a new religion because the Hebrews messed theirs up. And that's not, that's not what happened. They were simply doing what we always do. And my analogy is that of a class reunion. For those of you who had a high school class reunion, say your 10th t- year reunion, it was a lot of fun. Everybody's still young. Only a couple people married. Uh, you're 28. Maybe everybody's still around the punch bowl a little too long. And then they jump into the swimming pool and they're close and ha, ha, ha. It's the most fun we've ever had. And then comes the 20-year reunion, and there's always, there's always this one guy that says, well, now's the time when we jump into the swimming pool, right? This is when we do this. But, you know, now you're, now you're 38, and, and that doesn't seem like so much fun. And, and, then, and then maybe you come back for your next reunion after that. And you're 48, and you really don't want to jump into the swimming pool. And you got this guy saying, but we always jump into the swimming pool. This is what we do at our class reunion. And then you realize that this fellow is confusing means with ends. The end is relationships. The end is memory. The end is getting together and seeing your friends. The end is catching up with with folks. But the means, how you do this can change over time. So what Jesus does in Mark chapter 10 is he simply changes course for these guys. He refuses to get sucked into a game of means and ends. He says this in verse 3. What did Moses command you? And they answer the question. Well, Moses according to Deuteronomy, allowed for a certificate of divorce. And then Jesus, because he's not going to go into the weeds with them, he says, yes, because of your hardness of heart, he allowed you to do this. Now, that phrase, hardness of heart, is a key connection to something that happened in Mark chapter 3. And if you want to treat yourself, read Mark's gospel like a short story. Just read it from start to finish. Make this one of your New Year's resolutions. You will see things that you'll never see before. And what you'll see in that cool scene is in Mark chapter 3. It's on the Sabbath. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. They bring to him a man with a withered hand, a man with a little hurt hand, because they want to see if he will heal on the Sabbath and break one of those laws. And it's because of their hardness of heart they do it, and it makes Jesus angry. And that word anger is a word that's not used anywhere else in this gospel. It means that literally it makes the top of his head come off that they're so mean. And, and so what, what this is telling us is that this interaction with the Pharisees, this test, is starting to make Jesus mad. 
So what he says, in effect, when he asks them about Moses is this. Here's, here's, here's point one. People will always fail to live up to the ideal. And it's here Jesus takes them back to the beginning. Okay, back to Genesis chapter one, when he, which is the creation of people, people made in the image of God. And it's a brilliant move if anyone was paying attention. What Jesus is doing is something that's more demanding and yet more free. It's more radical than anything the Pharisees could have thought of. He said, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, a summary of the story of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3, could easily be this. They knew it in a way that we probably don't. We probably don't think about Genesis all that much. We think it's maybe the origin of why the world's so bad, or we might argue over whether it's supposed to be a science textbook. Uh, but Genesis 1 through 3 makes a very, very key point that Jesus rests on here. Here we go. Summary of Genesis 1 through 3 is this. Adam and Eve are created, and they're given everything they ever needed in the garden. They have everything that they could want with one prohibition. They must not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Now, I've always wondered why did God put the tree in there in the beginning, but you see, we're not given that reason. God God has God's own purposes, and we're not told why the tree is there. I mean, gosh, for me, just give me everything I want, and then don't give me anything that I think will hurt me. Uh, but instead, the tree's there, and they are warned, eat of the fruit, and you will die. So God is demanding. This is, this is the demanding, and then the freedom coming later. God's demanding. You eat of the fruit of the tree, you will die. Well, you know what happens, right? They eat of the fruit of the tree. They do, and could duh, because they're human. But then they don't die. There's grace. I mean, way back at the beginning, there is grace. Now, it'll be hard for them, but they don't die, and God cares for them. And one of my favorite little verses of this first part of our Bibles is Genesis 3.21, if you want to write that down. Genesis 3.21, And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for the wife and clothed them. Did you catch that? God picks us up when we fall. So here Jesus does two things with regards to this trap of the Pharisee, right? He takes the hard line and then he sweeps it all away with grace. Back in the house, which is, by the way, Mark's marker, the Gospels are not merely newspaper reportings. They're they're artful retellings. Anytime you see the house, this just means that they're back in the safe place, back on Black Rocks, perhaps, back, back there where he can talk to his friends and they could get real and he could, can really get down there with them. Uh, he sets up a standard that uh, that is impossible for any of them, especially for the disciples, to either to enforce or to even even live. He just sets up an impossible standard. Uh, and he says if if a man divorces his wife and remarries, he commits adultery against her, uh, even if it's legal. And if a woman divorces her husband and remarries, she commits adultery. And what Jesus is doing is what he always does again and again and again and again. I want you to think of it this way. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Ends that God wants for us, uh, those are the communication of God's divine mind to humanity. The coming of Jesus, for God so loved the world, he became one of his own creation, is also a communication of the divine mind. Uh, God wrote for us the Ten Commandments, and God spoke to us in the person of Jesus. And Christianity is the only religion you just can't do. Can't do it. I mean, look, of all the world religions, Christianity is the only one that the disciples saw it here in the house, and we see it again and again. Uh, you can't do it. Who can be perfect as our Father's perfect? Who can forgive 70 times 7? Who can be pure-hearted in the way that God wants to be pure-hearted? None of us are. None of us are good enough. 
This is a standard we can't uphold, which makes us free because we discover God when we fall. We discover God when we fail. Speaking of the house, um, I like the theory, and I like I like to think that the house is always the same house. In, in the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus' first miracle, this a healing, uh, is in a house. It's in Simon Peter's house. He heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, and it's the only house that's identified as such. And then you, you, you see in the gospels that they go back to the house again and again and again. The house is where they talk. The house is where a man's let, let down through the roof uh, to be healed. The house is where they they get the they, they get the explanation of parables. The house is where they get the intel uh, that that's reserved for the inner circle alone. It's it's intimate. It's it's familiar. It's their safe place where they could really talk. And so we're told here at the end of this little passage that I read to you that children were coming to Jesus and and it was disturbing the disciples. Well, if this is the house. Simon Peter's house, and if this is the house where they go to again and again, this means it's in Capernaum, and it means that these children were most likely the disciples' own children, and they were stern with them because they're trying to learn something from the master here. They got the rabbi, and he's giving them some some really strong intel, and Junior is running around Jesus' legs, and so, of course, they're going to speak sternly uh, to your own kid, especially, and Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Something marvelous has happened at uh, at St. Luke's uh, since since the COVID lockdown. You, here we are in year three of this thing, and we've learned so much. But pre-COVID, we had lots of we had lots of baptisms at the church, and we still have lots of baptisms at the church because we're a neighborhood church, we're a big church. But what we were doing is we were having them on a Sunday morning, and we were lining up about five families at a time. I would call it an industrial baptism, and. It was hard on the families because they wanted their children to be quiet because you've got a big room for a lot of people. And I, I try to tell the families, it's okay. Many of us have had children. We, we get it. We like the sound of children. And those of us who haven't had children, we've all been around kids so much around here at St. Luke's that we, we're really cool with it. But you would just see some mom and dad really, really worried about a screaming infant or the toddler sibling or cousin, you know, creating havoc. And so for COVID, when we had the COVID lockdown, for a long time, we had a limit of the number of people who could be in the building. Remember those days? So we started having baptisms on Sunday afternoon. And I love it. And we're still doing it. And we're going to keep doing it. It's because what we do is we let the children have the run of the place. So the family arrives with the baby in a gown and then, uh, you know, toddler cousins or toddler siblings or, you know, little ones or, or, or pre, you know, preteens even are helping with the little ones and they're all running around and I get to talk to them and I get to know them and I show them the water that we pour and they stick the little fingers down in it and I tell some of them about the day that they were baptized and I'm in relationship with them. But what's beautiful about it is it seems to be a fulfillment of something that Jesus commanded all of us. Let the little children come to the church. Let the little children come to me. If children live by grace and they live in the moment. They live in wonder. They they learn right around the corner. They teach, They show adults a world that is beautiful and hopeful in a way that we never, ever see. So children have been a blessing to me on Sunday afternoons as they are teaching me the value of worship, which brings me to one other observation that I've seen about my church, and and that is as a person who was once a young parent in the pre-COVID days, we used to take our children to church. But the COVID disruption affected two groups the hardest, children being one of them, senior adults being the other, and children because they were disrupted in school for so long and had to look at a blue screen, they longed for community. They longed for connection. They longed for play. 
Uh, they long for uh, uh, the simple things like like a donut uh, on Sunday morning or a good Sunday school lesson. And so what I've noticed here now in this post uh, this post pandemic uh, reality that we're beginning to live into finally is that uh, um, children are bringing the families to church. We used to bring our children to church. Children are bringing their families to church. Let the little children come to me uh, because theirs is the kingdom of God. I hope you're beginning to see uh, what Jesus is teaching here. Don't confuse means with ends. Uh, Know that we always fail. Uh, Know that grace is always possible. This is not another piece of legalism when it comes to divorce, but rather an orientation to say that none of us is good enough, but God sees a pure heart and God picks us up when we fall. God always wants us to try. God always wants us to be healthy. And God always wants us to have a child's wonder. And it's good to have this in mind because next week we're going to talk about money. So we'll see you again. And thank you so much for joining me in this podcast.